Thank you, Susan. You always have had a way with words. A very powerful testimony. I spoke to one of uh, your students one time in the near past, and they said you were a hard teacher, which translates to she cares about your mind and actually wants to promote it and cause it to flourish. Appreciate you not backing down. Uh, thank you for your energies for the Lord and serving Him in that area and for your testimony. As God is immutable, and what a power-packed group of scriptures that Susan shared with us. If you think about it, because He doesn't change, uh, we wouldn't be here if He did, right? I mean, if, if we... If we were witness to about this God who's merciful and loving and He can transform our hearts and He can, he can redeem us from, from hard situations and then we give it a try and it doesn't work, there wouldn't be anybody sitting in, in church pews. But it's because God does what He says He's going to do. Now, it's not always in the way that we think, but He is faithful. And His plan is unfolding exactly as He would have it. To unfold and it's happening in our lives and so we can turn to scripture with great confidence when we read psalm 2 this morning we know that whatever is in there shall come to pass what god says about himself as he reveals his character shall come to pass so we are going to turn to psalm 2 this morning and today is a communion sunday and when we do communion most of the time we do something different we sw- i switch the sermon material up and do what I call God tune, which the Psalms really are God's tunes. They're inspired songs uh, given to the saints of old so that they can worship the right God in the right way. And that's why we're turning to these Psalms, is to worship the right God in the right way so that we can exalt Him this morning. I want to just say that I will actually be in this Psalm for the next two Sundays. So it'll be a two-part series. And this morning we'll concentrate mostly on the immediate text. And then next week we're going to really drive it home in a more personable way. But there's plenty to apply this morning. And this is a messianic psalm. That's why I'm going to go ahead and take two parts to cover this material. Because this is the Advent season and it's all about the Messiah. Now, before I read these scriptures, and it's only 12 verses... I'm just going to point out to you the overall theme of the next two Sundays as we think about this psalm. This is what's on my heart. This is what I want to come through. And this is what I think, when it gets right down to it, what the message of this psalm is. And that is that there is, there is no refuge from the king. There is only refuge in the king. And we live in a world that is running from the very thing it needs the most. And that was my testimony until God saved me. I was running from the very person, the king, that I needed the most. And yes, we are in a church, but there are times where even we as Christians run from the very king that we need the most. We run from the ways We run even from the boundaries. We run from the laws and the principles and the values that we actually need the most. And these are values of the king. 
But we don't get to run away from Jesus. We don't get to ignore him. We don't get to scoff the king. We don't get to disobey the king and then find immediate refuge. So in order to find the refuge that we need, and we do need the king's refuge, there is only one way to do that, and that is to run to the king. Sorry, I haven't worn this in a while. God doesn't change, but I think my ear changed uh, recently. It's not fitting right. So let's read these 12 verses in Psalm 2. Here's what the psalmist says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take command together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell her the decree the Lord sent to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is a messianic psalm. And there's probably some terminology that you recognized as I read it about the only begotten son and 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 in all the nations as your inheritance. And that is to say that there are promises that God made that go beyond the boundaries or the banks of the immediate situation of King David, the Davidic kingdom. This psalm is actually quoted six times in the New Testament. So the New Testament writers are, they know about this, and they apply it to their immediate context. And I just want to... um, Spend a little bit of time reading some of those scriptures for us this morning so you can see the, the, the New Testament concept. In other words, this side of the cross. And this is why it's a, messia- a messianic psalm, meaning it was um, written for uh, Jesus the Messiah. In other words, some of these truths actually will be fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. So in the book of Acts, the church has just taken off. And um, it says in verse 33, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Christ. So the author is describing the death and the resurrection of Christ. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the psalmist sees the raising of Christ kind of as the coronation. This is this is God's anointed and I am raising him up to the throne. Because when Jesus raised from the dead, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So they're applying this coronation psalm to Jesus after he rose from the dead. Now, there's another one earlier in Acts 4. You know, the church has taken off and we had Pentecost and the Spirit came out. So people are preaching the gospel at this time. 
And in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, it says, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And here's the quote. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Verse 27, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So you see, the psalmist says, I've been anointed. You called me your son today. But all the kings around me are plotting against my authority. And this is how the um, the early believers applied this scripture. Yeah, it's happening with the anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ, Herod and Pontius Pilate. The kings of the earth are plotting against him. And then uh, there's one in Hebrews 1, 5. Uh, For which of the angels did he say at any time, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And of course, Hebrews is all about the son is better. Jesus is better than everything that came before because he, he fulfills it. He enriches it. And then the last one I'll share, and there's a few more, but um, it's in Revelation two twenty six through 27. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Of course, who's that? Jesus, who obeyed perfectly. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. So you see the coronation, the kingly rule that Jesus has. We'll concentrate on that a little bit more next sermon. But I wanted to point that out. And that's why I'm going to spend two Sundays, because we're talking about Advent. And we are preparing our hearts for kind of reliving coming of God in the flesh, coming to this earth to save us and to redeem us. So that, in that sense, it's a messianic psalm. Now, what the psalmist is describing, however, it's not just the future, it's the here and now. So this psalm related to God's people as it was written. And in that day, God anointed David to be king. And he set his line up to be the Davidic rule or the Davidic kingdom. That is, his descendants will also rule on the throne. And so this psalm describes a real-life coronation situation. This really happened. There really were kings that set themselves against God's anointed. God really did anoint this king. So the, the psalm kind of opens it up itself up, uh, itself up and divides into four really easy and organized parts. And the first three that we'll look at this morning is that the kings rebel, and that's in the first three verses. So you see what's happening. God has anointed someone. He's the king, and he has been given authority by God. Now, what happens whenever powers change or new powers come to be? The neighboring kingdoms, kings, queens, what have you, rulers, they take note of this. And in this situation, nobody wants to be overpowered. Nobody wants to let a local kingdom or group of people come into power so that you would have to be in subject to them. So they sit around and they plot. And they literally think really hard. What can we do to avoid the authority of this king that has been set in place? Herod did it. Pontius Pilate did it. 
There, there's a there's competition now, new competition in the world. And so there's plotting and thinking. David was anointed by God. And you'll remember in the book of Samuel, he was anointed way before he ever became king. There's a whole sermon in that. God's patience and God's timing. And to be anointed, of course, is to be set apart. God anoints different people for different uh, capacities. And that means he, he's, he's given you his, his powers and abilities and he's placed you in a position to serve him in a certain way. He sets you apart. Uh, it's not uncommon at all in the Old Testament for kings to be anointed. You will read about priests being anointed to serve him in the priesthood. And then on some occasions, even some prophets were anointed, set apart by God to serve him. So these local nations surrounding Israel, these some of them probably petty, but nonetheless they're rebelling against the king. The important thing to know here is that when you're rebelling against the king whom God has set in place, you're not just rebelling against that king. You're not just rebelling against this earthly system. You're rebelling against the God who placed him there. He's God's anointed. That's the emphasis of this section of, of Psalm. He's God's anointed. And so to mess with him is to mess with his God. Because it was his God that set him there to do this job and to rule in the first place. See, God is a personal God. And he doesn't just send us off or send us out. He is with us. He is present. God with us. Emmanuel. That's what we're celebrating during this season, he was with King David. So when he sends us, when he, when he sets us up in positions, he knows what's going on in our life. He knows our circumstances. And when the kings come against David, the Lord knows this and he takes action. And it reminds me about how much he cares about his people. And then in Acts, if you, if you think about the New Testament, Acts uh, 9.4 was the road to Damascus. And it's the Apostle Paul. And this is pre-conversion days. And what's he doing? He's full of energy. He's a guy that's full of energy. And he's serving the Lord by, persecute, by persecuting believers. By persecuting Christians. Because he doesn't believe in Christ as the anointed. So that's what he's doing. And the road to the Damascus, he has a God moment. And what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, basically, what, what are you doing? What do you mean, Lord? You're, why are you persecuting me? You see how personal? He didn't say, look, why are you persecuting all these believers? You got the family over here and these group of believers, this church over here. Why are you doing that? He says, why are you persecuting me? You see, God is so personal. He knows what's happening in our lives. Did Jesus literally persecute Jesus? No. I mean, did Paul literally persecute? No, he was after all of this. But he's persecuting those who have identified themselves with Christ. And Jesus knows every point of pain in their lives. He's taking it personal. What did he do about it? Now, in this case... He transforms the Apostle Paul into a believer, which means there's one person in the world who will no longer be abusive 
to the church. He turns his enemy into a friend. And that's how God works. It doesn't mean that there was no longer any persecution, but they were redeemed at least from this little firecracker of a guy who was so determined to serve the Lord. You see how personal God is? We're not on our own. Christ cares about his people. When he sets us apart to follow him, he knows the difficulties that we encounter. He transforms our hearts. But when we identify as Christians, you talk about countercultural. Jesus is making us or, or asking of us, commanding us to make personal life decisions that will not be user-friendly to our culture, that will set them on edge. But it's important to know that he is well aware of the suffering and the persecution that we have to endure because he has set us apart to live in that way. Uh, and it's interesting to me that in that Acts 4 passage, that the persecution that the church was undergoing and the plotting against Christ was applied to the psalm too. Yep, you're going to get it. You identify with my king and there will be those that will rebel against you, they'll plot against you, and they will rage against you. They see that fulfillment in this. God's a warrior king and to rebel against his anointed, and those he has set in place is to re rebel against God. So we want to be reminded that what happens here on the, in the seen world, in the earthly system, there's a, the, the, um, the transcendent world, the spiritual world, the, the powers and the heavens that are also very involved in, of, in everything that's going on in our lives and the life of the church. So what is God's response to this rebellion? We see this in verses 4 through 6 as it unfolds. I mean, what do you do if you're God and you see kings bringing all their arsenal together, all their, their intellectual powers, and they're going to, to get rid of you or rebel against you or take you out? You laugh. You laugh. And so the description of God in the heavens is that as hard as you're working down here and as much energy as you're putting into it, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. So I know we often picture God as very stern, maybe always pointing his finger, or very burdened because of all that's going on in our world right now with the pandemic and um, people's lives being altered, and we just picture God... Always serious. Well, in this psalm, he's got a sense of humor. And rightly so. Now, you think about, in real life, when it comes to rebellions, when it comes to war, uh, things can happen to change the events. So you might be preparing for a battle where the underdog actually does win. You know, there could be on the battlefield, maybe it rains. And now... The power is at a disadvantage, and the underdogs win. Perhaps, and these things have happened in real, in real warfare. Perhaps a fog settles in on the battlefield. That can change things. Uh, perhaps uh, an order or a command was misunderstood, and mistakes are made. 
and underdogs can lose the battle. So anything can happen. Freezing temperatures. Uh, armies that have been ill-prepared. So the unexpected can happen. But it, if you just sit down and think about this, as, as God looks at everything in its reality, he, he can't help but to laugh because the unexpected is not going to happen when you're going up against God Almighty. He really is the king. There really is no power that can stand against him. He's created everything. Everything is under him. And so the very thought that, that, that the earthlings are rising up against this anointed, whom God stands behind, it's just laughable. But he goes on, because it's only laughable as long as you think about that aspect. But then when you think about the fury, it says God holds them in derision. That means there's also, there are consequences to these actions. So yeah, it's laughable that they think they can do this, but when they receive the consequences, when they actually do rebel against the king and plot against him, and then the king executes wrath and justice, it's no longer funny. It's no longer a laughing matter. So the king, God, his emotion is in this. You know, God's righteous. And we don't like to feel pain. We, we live in a world that does everything it can to rid us from any kind of physical and spiritual, psychological pain. God's a righteous God. And because He's righteous, He will punish evildoers. He will rectify the wickedness that is rampant in our hearts or in the world. Because that's who he is. That's what he does. He doesn't just sweep things under the carpet. He doesn't just give you a pill and say, see me in the morning. He takes wickedness seriously. And he, he intends to make it right. And he does that through the fury of his wrath. Whatever comes to us or humanity, it is well deserved by the king. We're foolish to think that we can rebel against this authority. And I'm reminded in Proverbs when they talk so much about fools and wisdom. And you'll remember that a fool in Proverbs isn't what we would consider a fool today. It's not that they have necessarily like this really low IQ. A fool in Proverbs is somebody who is, uh, is morally stunted. They don't get the difference between right and wrong. And they don't because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You see, you have to know God. And that's what makes you wise. Knowing who God is. Knowing what God is all about. Doesn't necessarily matter what your IQ is. Heaven can call you wise or foolish based on how you relate to Him and what you know about Him. And it's a foolish thing. Bottom line denominator. It's a foolish thing in the in the realm of how things really are because God made them that way, to think that we will ever get away with rebelling against God or His anointed. We're fools if we have a low view of God. So then the song continues to unfold and we see, thirdly, this divine decree and... You know, the person that's speaking now is one of the kings. And he's describing what God said, this anointing. 
in verses 7 through 9. It's God's divine decree. I will tell her the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And I know that sounds familiar because you probably read the New Testament more than the Old Testament. But it comes from the Old Testament. Not just applied to Jesus Christ. So I want to spend a little time about on this phrase, you're my son and today I have begotten you. Because it's a very powerful thing for God to call someone my son. It's a, a spiritually powerful, dynamic, packed phrase. Because what God is describing here is sonship. And the way that God looks at it, and the way that the, the culture, when this psalm was written, understood it is a little different than the way we think about the power of sonship. Now, a lot of times we think of sonship immediately, our minds go to the biological aspect, right? Who belongs to who uh, biologically? And we have, um, you look on all the, uh, the tabloid shows or whatever, and there's not one that goes by without a DNA, DNA test to find out who's really your daddy. It's an it's a important thing. You've got to find out who's your daddy in all these years. We thought such and such was it. And it's just a, a mess. And you can even get kits today um, that you send in your blood, I think, and they test your DNA and they tell you who you come from, your heritage. It's, it's all biologically based. So we're a DNA kind of culture right now, scientifically. But biblical sonship is way more than the biological identity. It has to do with the function. It has to do with, with the calling. It has to do with your identity with a certain group of people, whether they're your biological parents or not. Now, we talked about this in our, um, our Identity in Christ series, right? And we talked about the traditional way. How do you know who you are? Where does your identity come from? Well, the traditional way says it comes from your family. You're born into it. Because you belong to Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And in this culture, um, the way it used to be traditionally is, if your, parent, if your dad was a baker, you were a baker. Uh, if your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer. If, if your mom was a stay-at-home mom or, or she, she worked from the house, I mean, you followed in the steps of your parents. That's the ancient world. Uh, we believe Jesus' occupation was what? Uh, who was a carpenter? His father. So you just kind of did. So there was, a, there was a powerful aspect where that does matter and that does count. We talked about that in that series. And the idea is that your identity and your purpose and your vocation, your calling, what you're going to do in life and who you are, uh, takes place surrounding your family. Now, we don't see the traditional uh, way of identifying ourselves near as much. Because if I said, raise your hand, all those that are doing exactly and following in the steps of what their parents do. It's, it's almost rare now to see that happen. We have different, it's a different world and different opportunities. But the, 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 the point of this is that the idea of sonship, when God anointed David, David was already born. He's already a mature man. We're not talking about biology. 
He's saying, you are my son. What does that mean? He's saying, I'm going to shape you. I'm going to shape your character. I'm going to father you to be like me, to be what you ought to be, to function as you ought to function. So when God calls someone a son or daughter, it means that he is taking personal responsibility over you to parent you in the way that you should go. It's a beautiful thing, and God really does shape us. We come, out, we come under this. Now, we see several examples of this idea of sonship pertaining to are you following in the steps regarding your behavior and your mindset of those who are over you. We see it in negative ways, and we see it in positive ways. You've ever heard the term when you read Scripture, sons of Belial. You're sons of Belial. That doesn't mean you are literally a son of some man named Belial or a daughter. It's a a derogatory term. It's not biological. It means you share the same kind of wicked heart and character as Belial. Someone who represents the devil or the enemy. There's, There's a worthlessness about you. There's a wastefulness about you. You see, it's, it's about shaping. It's about character. Or how about this one? Sons of thunder. What are you? You're little booms. You're little booms because your parents, the mother or father, they're big booms, man. They make a, a presence. And you also are bearing these characteristics in the way you approach life and the way you do these things. And now you'll recognize this one because we studied Matthew. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So what does that mean? That means if we are children of God, one of the characteristics about us will will find ourselves thinking along the terms of making peace. Right? Making peace. We're, We're not in the camps. Now, who... How many times have we heard the word divisive or divisiveness in 2020? I mean, everywhere we look, camps are, are grouping and not getting along. I mean, just, I, I've never seen it so divisive. And that's, that's their goal. That's their aim. They want their way and they're not going to tolerate anybody else. They're not going to allow them to think. There's the cancel culture. Everything is just so stern and harsh and and violent. And then you read this verse, blessed are the peacemakers. So the people of God are the ones in this divisive culture, not taking camps, but looking for opportunities to make friends, to make peace, not compromising truth. You know Jesus would never compromise truth. And yet he's a peacemaker. There's a way to do it by using truth. Truth sets us free. So that's something for us to think about in this day and age, about what what am I characterized with all of the political and social upheaval and medical upheaval? What, What part of my character is coming out in all of this as it's being tested and refined? Do I see myself as wanting to be a peacemaker or I am am I right in there with everybody else? just looking for another enemy to punch in the nose. Now, for the best example of 
sonship. And then we'll move on to our final point. And it's really sad. It's a sad commentary of the Jewish rulers in the days of Jesus who were absolutely convinced of their true identity. They were convinced of it biologically and they were convinced of it character-wise, who they really emulated. And Jesus calls them out on this. And John, beginning with verse 37. I know, this is Jesus speaking, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So you see where Jesus immediately, where he's getting at? Uh, We don't share the same fathers. And they answered, oh, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, now, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. So they make it biological. He's not disputing the DNA, the genetics. He's disputing the true idea of sonship. If you're a child of Abraham, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. And I heard from that. I heard from God. This is what Abraham, this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God. I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So you're going to stand there and tell me God is your father. When here I am, God in the flesh, sent right from heaven And you don't even recognize me. And not only that, God is a God of love. He's a God of truth. And you are lying about me. And you are plotting to murder me. So how do you get off on calling yourself sons and daughters of God? Now look at the appeal to our mindset. What do we do with our time? What do we do with our thinking powers? Why are we here? What are we doing with the gifts and the abilities that God has given us? What are we doing with the riches that God has given us? Do they in any way emulate how Jesus came in the flesh and worked out the will of his father? Yes, as a carpenter. Yes, as a preacher. Yes, as a brother, as a son. It's an emulation. Is God shaping us? Are we truly sons and daughters? Or are we like these Jewish leaders who just knew who they were and were wrong? Dangerously, dangerously wrong. What a sobering passage. God takes serious sonship. You know, when he called Israel out of Egypt in Exodus 4, we're used, you know, we've heard the phrase, let my people go. That's true. But 
There are other places where he says, let my son go. I'm calling them out to be like me. And you're not going to get in the way of this when I call my children out to worship me and to be like me. God is standing by us as his sons and daughters. And then lastly, the divine warning. You know, based on the first three sets of words and where the psalmist is going, this has to happen. These words have to be spoken. Therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. You see, there's not this in-between stuff. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son or he'll be angry. You know, are we, are we worshiping God? What does Romans tell us? We, we are born as enemies of God. Not friends who don't serve him or just a neutral entity. We are at enmity with God because if we're not worshiping him for who he really is, then we're his enemy because he is God and there is no other. It's only right to issue the warning when you've had such stern words and truthful words. So remember, as I close, the the big picture in this psalm, as we think about our lives, there's no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. So if we find ourselves running, think about that this morning. Where are we with this beautiful, loving, merciful demanding, commanding, powerful presence. And we have an opportunity to to break bread together this morning as the body of Christ. We want to be thinking about our sonship. We have an opportunity to sing our praise to Him, to worship Him, to emulate the characteristics of Christ who came before us. We have a lot of opportunity here this morning to worship the God who redeemed us in whom we take refuge. And I pray that that is what we will do and take advantage of this morning. May God bless the preaching of his word.